he was anti-apartheid. In other words, he was against uh, the separation of, uh, and really the uh, persecution against black people in South Africa and a, ma a minority of white people who were uh, trying to run everything for their own benefit. So here's what it says. For most of his adult life, Nelson Mandela worked to bring an end to apartheid practices of South Africa. Although today most people recognize the injustice of the system that he fought against, in Mandela's own day, he faced considerable opposition. His efforts to change the government's inhumane treatment of its own citizens led to his arrest and trial for treason. Now, there's lots of other things that Nelson Mandela did, including winning a Nobel Peace Prize, but some other things we may not be in agreement with, but that's not my point. My point is that he worked so hard to rid South Africa of this particular uh, evil. So his efforts to change that ended up landing him in uh, jail for treason and, from his trial. And at his trial, he said one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century. And I quote, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic free society in which all persons live together in harmony with equal opportunities. It is an idea which I hope to live for and achieve, but if it needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die, end quote. He was jailed for 27 years. His first sentence was for life, but uh, he, he only ended up with 27, not only, that's, that's a lot for anybody. 18 of those years was in a prison where he lived in a small cell where he had no bed and he had no plumbing, 18 years where he was forced to do hard labor. During that time, he continued his education by means that he could get, uh, afford himself of, by correspondence, always looking for ways to work more effectively for the freedom of his people. Eventually, Mandela was released from prison and participated in the negotiations to end apartheid in South Africa. But as the title to his autobiography states, and it's entitled this, Long Walk to Freedom, that suggests that he had to endure many, many years of bitter opposition to achieve his worthy goal. And as I mentioned earlier, he ended up being president from 94 to 99 uh, in, in South Africa. Well, uh, we all know that uh, doing the right thing in life is not always the easy thing to do. Sometimes you have to sacrifice something in your life to be able to do the right thing. You might sacrifice friends. You might sacrifice opportunities. You might sacrifice uh, all kinds of things happening in life uh, that, that you could have done, but you stood up for what was right. Uh, the battle for what is right uh, and the right thing may take a prolonged period of time for you to endure with lots of corresponding opposition to doing the right thing. We know that is true. But when we are doing it for God, it seems like it's a little bit harder to understand. We don't often understand, why doesn't God just give us instant success when our goals are to promote him, when our goals are to advance the ministry of Jesus Christ, when our goals are try to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ? I mean, we are convinced that he is sovereign. We believe he is all-powerful, and he is. So why do we have to struggle at times when we are working for him? For example, why do faithful churches struggle for years to grow and sometimes they don't achieve it? Why does God allow opposition to the gospel to go on in the people that we're trying to reach? What are we supposed to do when we expect his blessing, but instead it feels like we just experience defeat after defeat 
as we go along working for him. Well, I want us to uh, look into this Old Testament text, and I want us to transfer the lessons that we learn from there into our New Testament understanding. So you're with me in Ezra chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 6. Now remember what happened last time at the first part of chapter 4. What happened was that they were beginning to build, uh, to build just like uh, God told them to, Zerubbabel's temple, and people stepped in, and they got in the way, and they said, we want to help you. And the leader said, no, you're not going to help us. This is God's work. You have no part in it. And they got mad, so they hired counselors, we would say lawyers, to go back and fight against the Jews in Jerusalem and the building of the temple to fight against them. And so they hired counselors in, in verse 5, and that was in the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until Darius became king in Persia. So it's opposition, opposition, opposition. Now we're going to jump way ahead in time. So this is not chronological. We'll talk about why that's the case in just a few minutes. But in verse 6 it says this, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Midrath, I'm sorry, Mithradiah, Tabil, and the rest of his colleagues, they wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote the letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges, and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, and the Babylonians, and the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which were which the great and honorable Anaspar, which is probably Ashurbanipal, deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river. So what he's saying is that everybody up here around Jerusalem, all the people surrounding them, we all wrote this same letter because we all think it's a problem, and we think you better do something about it, uh, writing to King Artaxerxes. Verse 11, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants the men in the region beyond the river. Now that's where Jerusalem is. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. So understand this. Ezra, in the first part of chapter 4, they're building the temple. It wasn't until many years later that they built the wall. So this is information that's out of chronological order, but it's still the word of God and it still should be here. We'll talk about that in a minute. So now they're going to be talking about the issues of Nehemiah and the building of the wall. Nehemiah is not even back here yet. But Ezra used this letter in this place for a reason. So here, here it goes again, verse 12. Let it be known to the king and to the Jews who came, that the Jews who came up from you have come to Jerusalem, they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city, and they are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. They just called God's chosen city rebellious and evil. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenues of the king. Now because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's, dis the king's dishonor, Therefore, we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that this city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, 
and that they have incited revolt within the past days. Therefore, the, king was, uh, the city was laid waste. We informed the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Then the king sent an answer to Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. He begins his letter with peace. And now the document which you sent has, to me has been translated from the Aramaic and read before me. A decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in the past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that the tribute, custom, and tolls were paid to them. So now issue, so now issue a decree to make these men stop their work, that is, this city, that it may not be rebuilt until the decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the king? Then, as soon as the copy of the king Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms, in other words, by military force. Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So here's what happened. Uh, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to pretend like we are just faithful to Artaxerxes, and we think that you, you need to stop. And there was personal reasons in there that they wouldn't admit to. And we're going to write a letter to the king and tell, you about, tell him about how rebellious you are. King, just go to the library, go to your documents, look it up. This is a rebellious city. They're rebellious people, and you need to stop it. So the king sent his, his scholars into the library. They checked it out. Sure enough, that's the kind of city Jerusalem was. So he writes back and says, go tell them right now, stop it. And nobody can build again on that city until I give the order to build. All right, now having summed it up, then let's look at it a little closer. In verses 6 to 7, to stop our progress in ministry... Unbelievers will resort to force and shut down what we are doing. Now, all I did was I took what happened in reality there and what happens in our day in many places, and who's to say it won't happen in America someday, but the point is, even in our day, people don't like the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. They often try to do away with it. And to stop our progress in ministry, unbelievers will resort to force uh, to shut us down and what we're doing. And that, in this case, was legal force uh, before the king. In verse 6, in the beginning of the reign of Ahasuerus, the enemies of the Jews wrote a letter of accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. There is a problem with this section because it's not chronological within the book of Ezra. So uh, you don't have to get this, but you can if you want. Uh, this verse, verse 6, actually happened in history between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. All right, and the events of chapter 4, Ezra 4, 7 to 23, took place between Ezra chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 1. So he's obviously, because Ezra's still alive in Nehemiah's day, taken that letter and he put it in his letter for some reason and for some purpose. The letter was written in 485 BC, 80 years after the account that they are placed in with the building of the temple in Ezra's day. It's been 80 years, all right, placed here. So the letter was actually written before the return of Nehemiah 
in 444 BC, and Nehemiah went back to build the wall. One commentator stated that he thinks this is a flash forward by Ezra the scribe to clarify uh, the event, which is to discourage the exiles and the opposition to the building of God's house. I think he's right. I think what he's saying is that Ezra wanted to show you, we just got through with this opposition, verses 1 through 5, and there was other opposition. And Ezra puts it in here just to show how much the people of the land don't want them to build a temple and certainly don't want them to build a protective wall around that city. They are in opposition to the building. What he's saying is everybody is against us and they've been against us and they are going to be against us for a lot of years to come. Well, the word accusation in the text, in the Hebrew text, refers to a formal complaint in legal process asserting that a crime has been committed. The exiles are being taken, if you will, to the king's court, and the truth of the outcome is they will lose. They will lose. They want to build, they want to go forward, and they're going to lose this battle, which means they're not going to build, and they're not going to go forward. The bottom line is that they assert that the Jews are trying to build a protective wall around the city so that they can rebel against the king. In verse 7, in latter days, in the attempt to stop Israel, some leading men in the area uh, went and wrote a letter to the king, King Artaxerxes, about the thing they say is really going on at Jerusalem. Say, king, it is not innocent. These people don't have good motives. They're building a place to rebel against you is basically the bottom line. What's really going on in Jerusalem, king, you should be worried about. Now, what we need to know before we go into the body of that letter is that uh, in an early part of Artaxerxes' reign, Egypt had already tried to revolt and rebel, and that created a general lack of stability in that area that is called beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates River, because uh, Persia and, and Babylon are situated on, on the east side of that. Jerusalem and these Samaria, all those other places, they're considered on the west side of that. So the king already knows that there could be trouble over there, and now it's the Jews, and so he's probably going to listen really close to the accusation. What the Jews were doing would be very alarming to the king. The enemies of Israel knew that was going to be the case when they wrote this letter, so they wrote their accusation. Now in verses 8 to 16, the former power God had given Israel is used against them to cause a full stop to the building of the wall. In other words, it was Cyrus who said they could go up, and then Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. He got to go up and start building the wall. We have another king who says, absolutely not. Not on my watch you're not going to do that because of what had been said to him. So sometimes we get started in a ministry, and we have permission to do it, and then the next thing you know, everything has changed, and everything has turned, and all of a sudden, from the same authority, we're saying, they're saying, we can't do it. We, and many churches around the world have lost their freedoms to worship and to speak what the Word of God says. And that could happen in our country as well. In verses 8 through 10, the framers of the letter cite other people around Jerusalem as being a part of the opposition of the building project. The idea is to show a unified front in the entire area, except for Jerusalem, about what is going on to the king. So when the king reads it, it's not just one little place that's upset. They're all upset, at least according to the letter. All of them are pretending to have pure motives. I don't think their motives are pure at all. That was a judgment call on my part. The text doesn't say that. 
but they don't like them and they want to shut them down and now they're acting like they're really interested in the king and what he wants. People sometimes uh, get together and they act like they're really concerned about a certain situation. They're really not. They've been offended and when we're rejected, we'll reject somebody else and they feel rejected and these people are going to try to stop them. I don't think their motives are pure. I don't think they're really concerned for the financial well-being of the king. I don't think they really care that much that the king gets every ounce of taxes that he is supposed to get. But they say we're really concerned about the king's coffers. They probably didn't even like each other. You know, when, when one person gets in trouble and other people like, uh, don't like them as well, if somebody's willing to throw a rock at that person, then all the other people who are upset with that person, they'll throw rocks too. But they have different reasons for rock throwing. And then when they finally do away with the problem, we find out that they're disconnected because they have different issues and they can't get together. And sometimes the whole thing blows up. And that's probably what's going to go on here. They didn't even like each other, but they're willing to unify on this point, And the progress of the exiles is going to be in trouble. Enemies will often unite against a common enemy. But that doesn't mean that they are united on other issues. Now, I'm going to say something this morning two times. And I want you to hear it. I'd like you to put yourself in their shoes. We're trying to do what God told us to do. We want to build the wall. And now we have people against us, and they're going to the king, who really is in charge of whether we do this or not, and they're making trouble for us. But I just want us to remember, and Israel's God knows everything that is happening and the threats that are being made. Israel's God knows everything that's happening. He knows what Artaxerxes is reading in his hand. He knows what he's going to say. And he knows the threats that are being made. Because of Egypt, the king has concerns for the land beyond. Who could blame him? And they knew that would be a good leverage point, and it was. In verses 11 and 12, they identify themselves and the problem. The exiles are rebellious. They come from rebellious stock, and they're repairing the foundation of the city, and they're building a wall. There can only be one conclusion, and that is that they're going to rebel from the king. And that is not at all what's happening. But it doesn't matter what the truth is when your enemies attack you. Cities build walls for protection from enemies. Yes, that is true. They did it to maintain their independence usually. Uh, but that is not what's happening in Jerusalem. Everybody wanted to have a wall around their city. Otherwise, you're open to every marauding band that comes along. Building a wall throws up a red flag to the king now because these people wrote this letter, as it would any king uh, who had not approved it. And this is not the king that gave that permission. It's just like the Old West when the military moved into a new territory. And the first thing they did to, to make a foothold in that territory is they built a fort. Many of you, probably all of you, have, have driven by Fort Kearney, whether you've been in it or not. But they have that, that, car, that, that fort is built there, so you can see it. And it's built out of wood, just like they would have in that day. And Noel and I have been all over the place and seen different forts that they made as they uh, moved westward in, in the uh, United States. Well, that's kind of what you do if you want to stay protected. You want to take care of the women and the children while you're out hunting and you're out taking care of a problem. They need a wall around them. It's for safety. But they paint the picture of this Jerusalem as a rebellious and evil city. Now, I want you to get that because you're New Testament people. And in the book of Revelation and in the end times, God says there is an evil, wicked city in the world. And it just happens to be Babylon. There is a city of righteousness, a city of God in the world. 
And that just happens to be Jerusalem, the one that God chose to be the place where he would dwell. And all throughout the Bible, there is this play between these two cities. Now, the enemy of God's people are saying, no, you're the wicked and evil city. We're the righteous city. But God never said that. God says Jerusalem is a city of righteousness and Babylon is a city of wickedness and evil. That's why when we get to the book of Revelation, especially near the end, we see the interplay between the righteous city of Jerusalem and the wicked city of Babylon. So, they paint this picture that isn't true. The idea is to say that you don't want them building a city that has a track record of rebellion and revolt, and besides, they're evil. In the Bible, the city of Jerusalem exemplifies righteousness. Babylon is considered the city of wickedness. The patriots of the wicked city label the righteous city with its own reputation. And that's what happens with unbelievers when they're having a conflict with believers or the church. Uh, they're going to they're gonna take the, the evil and the wickedness and blame it on you and say, you're the reason that we have so many problems in our land because you stick to the Bible, you say this is right and this is wrong, and we don't agree with that. You're actually holding us back. You're wicked and you're evil. When the truth is, we're just doing what God told us to do, and we believe this is righteousness and that the world is wicked. The Bible tells us that the day will come when people call that which is good evil and that which is evil good. And that day has always been a part of the world's uh, history, but it's going to get worse. It is confusing to us when it happens. Why can't they recognize that we're doing the right thing? Answer that, and you'll know why people had a terrible time with President George Bush Jr. calling the perpetrators of 9-11 evildoers. It seemed obvious to God's children that that's exactly what they were, but not to those who aren't God's children. Calling God's holy city this, well, it is disgraceful. The letter in verses 13 to 16, uh, the letter writers paint a picture of a great loss to the king if action isn't taken to stop this. Artaxerxes would normally take in about 25 to 30 million in taxes and tolls every year from his kingdom. I don't think that at this point Jerusalem would mount to, to a handful of change, basically, in taxes. It's not like uh, even if they did do this, he's going to lose much. It's a drop in the bucket to him. Yet the accusation is that they would be damaging the king's portfolio. They won't pay tribute, they said. They won't, they won't do the set tax. They won't pay custom, or they won't pay duty on goods or tolls or the cost to travel on the king's highways. Uh, for the second time, they refer to themselves as servants of the king in his palace. They are not genuinely concerned about the king's treasury, are they? They suggest the king study the history books. Go back and look at the records and find out just what kind of a city this really is. And they said this is going to be the same character of the new city, Jerusalem, and those Jews in it. I don't know that that's always true. There are rebellious lots, and the investigation is going to prove in the past they were powerful. They did take toll from other people and exact uh, the, the payment of the suzerain from them, as if people will never change. Well, then finally in verses 17 to 24, we learn that God allows a pagan king, and if that's too, uh, too difficult for you, if God allows an unbelieving king to stop the progress of rebuilding his holy city, then God allowed it, and God does allow it. The king addresses the letter writers and confirms that 
when they went to study this issue, that's exactly the kind of city that Jerusalem has been. The king confirms the propensity of the city to rise up and revolt against those who have power over it. Notice, please, Artaxerxes confirms the former world power status and might of Israel. When uh, some history books and liberal commentators say Israel never was powerful, they never did rule all that. Well, here you have a, a pagan king saying, you know what, the proof in the history is they were powerful and they did exert pressure all over the area. I think that's important. They were powerful enough that they took tribute from others, custom, and tolls had to be paid to them. In verses 21 and 22, he issued a decree that he wants delivered without delay to the effect that the city may not be rebuilt until he says so sometime in the future. Now, what history taught us was that this king never said so. In the rest of his, his reign as a king, he never gave them permission. It's going to be somebody else. Basically, the king said to them, don't anybody do anything further. I will not lose revenue that is coming to me. In verse 23, they were more than happy to race to Jerusalem with some military people and stop them by military force. You're not going to do this. And I'm going to repeat that thing I said before because I want you to hear it for your ministry and for my ministry and for the church's ministry and for Jesus Christ's fame and glory and honor in America and around the world. And Israel's God knows everything that is happening and the threats that are being made. It is never like God doesn't know. It is never that God is out of touch, that he went on vacation and came back and found out everything fell apart. But God knows what's going on. He knew what happened with the letter. He knows what the king wrote back. He knows what these guys couldn't wait to tell the Jews to stop doing. He knows all of that, and he knows the threats. Why, God, would you allow these pagans to stop the progress of your will? Why would you let them cut us off at the knees? Stop us when we're trying to do something good for you. Well, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem stopped. We're talking basically about the wall and the city. It stopped. And it stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that temple wasn't completed until 515 B.C. Many years went by. God has allowed pagans to stop the efforts of his own children who are trying to please him. Dr. Nicolation offered three things for us here, and I think they're good, and I wanted to uh, tell them to you. Number one, God is willing to achieve his purpose over extended times rather than immediately. That's not the choice we want to make. We want our ministry to be successful right now. We want the friend that we've been witnessing to to come to know Christ right now. But there's full, the Bible is full of the history of God who shows us that he is willing to take some time to get what he wants done for whatever reason. And that may not be the way we want to do it, but that's the way God does it at times. We need to let God be God. Secondly, God doesn't always protect his people from discouraging setbacks in ministry. God doesn't always make us have a successful ministry right at the time we want to have a successful ministry. There are discouraging setbacks sometimes, and God doesn't protect us from those setbacks. He lets his people go through that. And thirdly, 
the narrator means to encourage steadfast obedience to God in the face of discouraging treatment rather than compromise to avoid trouble. Now let me read what, what Dr. Nicolation said in that, that last one. I want to do it again. The narrator means to encourage steadfast obedience to God in the face of discouraging treatment rather than compromise to avoid trouble. Sometimes we want to move something ahead, and, and if we just do something the world wants us to do, then, then maybe we could succeed, so we compromise. And what he's saying is God is trying to teach us you don't need to comp- compromise to try to make something happen. It'll happen when I want it to happen. Do you remember a patriarch? And his wife said, you know what? God promised us a child. And do you have any idea how old I am? Do you have any idea how old you are? That we are beyond the age of having children and, and, and your wife here is just about past everything, every hope? Why don't you take my handmaid and have a child with her? That must be what God wanted. You know what? God never needs us to help him get done what he wants done. And so he did that, and a young man was born that became the greatest rival in his day to the true son of Abraham. And he should have waited on God. Sarah should have waited on God. Friends, when we refuse to compromise, we will face opposition from God's enemies, and his work may be delayed for long periods of time. Can you trust him? Can you keep on in your ministry, even though it's difficult, doesn't seem to be working, even though it seems to be going against you, and it takes a long time? Can we continue to have faith? I found an illustration of that last point, and then we'll be done and we'll move to communion. And uh, this is about Muhammad Ali. In my day, he started out as a guy named Cassius Clay, uh, went, went to Islam and became Muhammad Ali. And what he invented here was called rope-a-dope. Yes, you heard me, rope-a-dope. When George Foreman fought Muhammad Ali in 1974, Ali coined a phrase for the strategy that he used to defeat the younger Foreman. He called it rope-a-dope. This is a strategy in which one fighter covers up his head and leans back on the ropes, allowing the boxer, the other boxer, to deplete his energy and strength throughout the entire match. This allows the passive fighter to bide his time and wait until exhaustion or a fantastic opportunity opens itself up to create weakness in the aggressor. So if you go home this afternoon and want to watch this on YouTube, you just do Ali's fight with Foreman in 1974, and you can see the rope-a-dope philosophy in action. I know because I watched it before I I gave this to you. And that's exactly what he did. The fighter uh, then plays possum while the aggressor is... Uh, just trying to beat beat the tar out of him. And uh, then the possum strikes, which would have been Ali, uh, that opponent, and the tide turns decisively. Now, uh, enough of Ali. Let's talk about what we want to know about God. God is never threatened in the ring by a younger, more aggressive opponent. There is no opponent, my friends, that ever causes God any concern. However, he certainly, that is God, bides his time in apparently a passive way until the right moment for his will to unfold comes about. He is not losing, but simply getting ready to turn the tide. When it appears that he is on the ropes, it's a -a rope-a-dope in which humans 
are being weakened to the point of repentance, dependence, and submission to the cross of Jesus Christ. My friends, I just want us to uh, pick up one main thing, and that's why there's only one in your bulletin under the application. But I want you to remember what I said. No matter what happened, God knew it. And he knew the threats. He knew what they were up against. And still, he let them wait. And they waited with faith. So the application here is, though we may be stopped in our work, and I mean our work for the Lord, God always has the upper hand. Trust him and be faithful. Trust him and be faithful. My favorite prophet of all time is the prophet Jeremiah. You cannot find in the Bible one positive outcome of his ministry. They tried to kill him, they mocked him, they made fun of him, they beat him, and we have no evidence that he ever reached a convert for God. And he never gave up. And he was faithful. When things don't happen in your life the way you want them to, the wrong thing to do is to stop trusting Jesus. I'd like you to think about that as we're going to do communion, and this is all kind of different for us uh, because of the stipulations that we're trying to avoid uh, spreading COVID, if we can, in our church. (laughs) 